The content of this podcast contains topics of sexual abuse. Please listen with care. And if you are struggling, please call 1-800-273-8255 or reach out to a mental health professional. Stock and you are listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Anyone who has endured any type of trauma knows that those traumatic moments shape us. They become ripple effects that control how we respond to the world around us. And if we cannot control our own emotions, we are held hostage by them until we make a conscious effort to heal that trauma or traumas. Joining me today is Gina DeFay, trauma survivor, thriver, and author of the recently released book, The Parakeet Drawing, a beautifully written and inspiring memoir about adversity and resilience. Gina, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Of course. You know, The Parakeet Drawing, incredibly gripping, inspiring. I couldn't put it down. Um, and I was lucky enough my, where my husband was taking the kids um, a lot that weekend. I just read it in two days. I just couldn't put it down. Okay. You know, you endured a childhood full of fear. Um, could you tell yeah. me uh, briefly about your story and why you decided to write this memoir? Sure. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, going through that trauma uh, and not really realizing, I think, you know, so many times people think that you know what's happening, but you don't when you're a child. Um, when I finally realized what was going on um, and the, because the, the abuse was getting worse um, and my, my stepfather was, um, you know, I, I, I believe starting to think about prostituting me out and I, you know, wanting me to go sit on other people's laps and his friends that would come over. And, and I, and about that time I was about 12 and started to realize like, this really is not right. And it's, it's getting worse. And so, you know, I need, I need to start figuring out how to get out. And, um, you know, and the, the whole part of the parakeet drawing is about, um, a stranger that, uh, took a moment with me and showed me that there are good people in the world uh, and, and really changed my mindset from having to survive every day by myself to trusting that there were good people in the world. I didn't know how to bridge that yet. I didn't know how to get to the good people, um, but he gave me faith that, that, that they would be there. And uh, from there made the decision to ask my dad if I could go and live with him and yeah, that just, um, that took me into safety. And I, you know, again, I, I say that I was like somebody who had come out of a war. I didn't realize um, that, that like you, like you had just said in the intro that you're just so caught up in survival and your own thoughts and those things that you've been through, you don't know any different. And so I was just trying to survive and I was happy that I had a safe house to live in and you know, the people next door had cows and I mean, it was like, this is kind of nice. It's kind of safe here. And, you know, I mean, there was still, it was still a definitely a, a hard life, but I, I wasn't being abused anymore, you know, sexually, mentally, uh, you know, verbally, any of that wasn't happening anymore. And I just wanted to function through life as, as, you know, quote, normal as possible, but I, I didn't know what that was. And so, you know, I was, 50 before I really felt like 
okay, I've done all the things I'm, I'm supposed to do. I raised my daughters. Um, you know, I, I have a good career. I can take care of myself. And I just felt like God was saying to me, you know, it's, it's time to go back to that and heal. And I'd been through 30 years of therapy, but I hadn't healed all the way. And, and, you know, honestly, Lori Lee, my, when that started to happen, I was like, really still like, <laughs> can we just be done with it? Like, mm-hmm. but I, I needed to, and that, that the book was a lot of healing to just get it all, get it all out. I had give, given out little pieces here and there, but I hadn't dumped everything out at once. Wow. Yeah, it was, I actually I was really emotional reading the book. I just can't imagine how someone, you know, you know, at 12, you started realizing that it was too much. I mean, that's, that's a lot of childhood that you lost. Um, And you also lived in a city that was very religious and, you know, kind of are surrounded by God fearing people and, um, you, you did realize that your family didn't fit that mold, I guess, when you actually, um, when your parents got divorced and your friends started telling you that they couldn't play with you or they couldn't be around with you. How did, how did that affect you? Yeah, that, that, you know, that was the beginning of isolation really, because I didn't, I didn't know that just, you know, that's one thing you as a, as a child, I was eight you know, that's very hurtful, but there was also no one to come home to and share that with, you know, that I couldn't come home and say, Mary can't play with me anymore. Um, because my, my dad wasn't in the house anymore. And he's, he's always been someone I could go to, but my mom and my stepdad, you know, it didn't matter to them that Mary couldn't play with me anymore. Um, and I learned very quickly, if I said anything, negative about anybody else or brought a concern maybe as a better way they would kind of bash them and all the reasons why they're such bad people and we're not bad people and it was confusing you know so so I stopped talking to them about things because you know I just wasn't it wasn't going to be support and I was I was I was a child so I was trying to understand boundaries and rules and and what I got was you know adult conversations that was very um Oh, like they were the victims. My mom and my mom and my stepdad were the victims. And, and I didn't know what that meant, you know? So, so it just became very, very isolating. Um, I knew I was different in their eyes, but I didn't think I was different. And that, that's Mm -hmm. something I always think that God really did for me is really protected me with a belief in myself. Um, and, and, the peer pressure or the way that people encountered me was difficult, but somehow I had a strength inside of, you know, it, it's going to be okay. Wow. But, but very isolating. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, you talk about it in your book, how just the, you didn't bond with your mother. It was, it was, and I think, you know, in therapy, I learned that, you know, cause I didn't have a great relationship with my mother. She had me when she was 40 and she didn't want a, a child. And, you know, I think, you know, she says this now that she went through like postpartum depression for like 18 years, but um, <laughs> I think she feels bad about it now because she, you know, 
I never got that affection from her that I wanted. And I think, you know, I was abused by my, sexually abused by my dad, but my mother, um, she, she never really showed me affection. And I think that was, um, I didn't realize how hard that was until like last year. So like, you know, at the age of 30, 35, I realized, okay, I, um, I do have these issues because of my mother, but I have other issues too because of my father, but yeah, yeah. you know, what was just, how did, how did that feel for you? Did you realize that there was something different or I guess different between your relationship with your mother and friends and their mothers? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't remember any relationship with my mom, even when my mom and dad were married. Um, there was just never hugs, you know, she wasn't, you know, and, and I grew up in the early seventies. I was born in the late sixties. So, you know, in the early seventies and, and again, in a, in an environment that was very religious and, and women stayed home and she didn't, she worked and she partied and, um, you know, I was the last thing that she wanted to have to deal with where on the other side, um, again, because of this very family community that I was in religious community, you know, everybody else's moms were, you know, the parent, parent, uh, the PTA, and, you know, they were always bringing treats into the school and, you know, even coming in and having lunch with their kids and, you know, the Girl Scout troops and, you know, Sunday school that it was everybody, you know, different moms from the neighborhood that were there. And, and, you know, my mom just was never present. I was always with somebody else or dropped off to go in on my own at any of those functions. And so I definitely saw it. I do think that um, because of the kind of community I grew up in, the, those other women were um, receptive to me, you know, they were all very parental and mothering but I also think they, so, you know, if I was in a situation, like I was at Girl Scouts, I got a lot of attention and how are you doing? And they'd braid my hair and those things. And then, but then it was when things were over, we're taking our kids and we're leaving and, and, you know, Gina will figure out her own way from here. So, you know, I think that they probably felt bad, but at the same time, didn't want to get in the middle of that mess that was happening over there. Mm. Why, if your mom did not want to put up with you, why did she, why didn't she say, hey, why don't you live with your father? Yeah. So I don't know the whole story on that, but I do know that there was some kind of an agreement. And again, this was, I think they divorced in 1975 was, it would have been very odd for a man to take a child, you know, probably, especially a girl, um, and because I've even, you know, I've asked my dad that, why didn't you just take me? And they had some kind of an agreement that um, he couldn't ask me to go. If I asked, I could go, but he couldn't ask mm-hmm. me. Um, and I think it was financially. He would have to do something with the house, pay off the house or child support would change or something like that. Um, because he's told me that even when I did go live with him, he still had to pay child support to her, even though I was with him. So, you know, I think part of that was the times. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've always thought it was odd that, that she didn't ship me off maybe more, you know, just mm-hmm. to, 
because, you know, she did if they weren't going to be home or she'd ship me up to my grandma's for the summer. Um, but there was, there was no like joy of having a child around, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and there wasn't even a, like you do the dishes, you know, I wasn't even like the chore person. It was, I was just completely ignored. Wow. So it's, yeah. So it's bizarre to me. Wow. I know that in the book, she partied a lot. She left the house. And yes, you. I read that you were just dropped off at random people's homes. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. did they think it was strange that they were just taking in? I mean, that was um, that was wonderful that they did. But I can imagine as a child how much fear is behind that. Yeah, very much. I mean. The, the first couple of times it happened, you know, and, and let me back up a tiny bit, because before they would drop me off at people's houses, they just wouldn't come home, you know, and I'm like, nine. yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, it, you just get in the mindset, you know, I can remember walking home from school and, and I will say this, I don't have a lot of memories. I would have loved to put more detail in the book, but I just don't have a lot of memories. I don't remember my teachers. I don't remember, you know, friends at school, but I remember walking home because I just never knew when I got home, I can remember thinking like trying to be strategic. What's when I open the door, are they going to be home? Are they not going to be home? If they're not home, will they come home today? Will it be two or three days before they come home? Um, if I open the door and they are home, um, you know, there were times I opened the door and my mom was, you know, drunk laying in throw up. And this is it. This is this is three o'clock in the afternoon, you know, I'm coming home from school um, just passed out and my stepdad's watching TV, you know, like nothing is going on. Um, you know, there were times I walked in once and she was being gang raped by five or six of his friends, you know? And so as a child walking home, it, there was no good outcome. You know, nobody was going to be there like, hi, Gina, what's your homework today? And look, I'm making meatloaf for dinner. <laughs> you know, that wasn't going to happen. And so, um, that, that, when they started dropping me off with people or leaving notes that I was staying with people, it actually was a little bit peaceful. You know, there were, there were a couple of times where, you know, I was always a little nervous going to people's houses, but I was more nervous because I was embarrassed. Like, would they know I was coming? Um, you know, did my mom tell this person? Cause sometimes I knocked on the door and it had been my stepdad that had just paid him 50 bucks and said, you know, she'll just come over on her way home from school. Um, you know, and, and there were times where, you know, there was one time that I remember specifically, it was a single man. And, and, you know, I always think back, it's, I'm amazed that I, that none of those people ever hurt me, not one of them, not one, but, you know, you'd have that, that fear of, gosh, what, you know, what's going to happen when I walk into this house and they shut this door and I'm this little girl with my, you know, little backpack. Um, I mean, you're right. I, I can imagine being with someone feel can feel a little safer than waiting and waiting for your parents to come home. And when they do come home, you're in trouble. Um, yeah. I knew I read that, you know, they were upset that you were awake when when one night when they came home and uh, you were calling to find out what bar were they at? I mean, yeah. 
did you feel like you could tell anyone? I know you say you don't remember your teachers, but did you, did you, was there like an inkling to want to tell somebody? Um, there was an inkling to want to tell my dad, but I really don't have any memories of, of ever being, feeling even maybe close enough to anyone to be able to say it. And again, in those times, there was just no, you just didn't know any better. Um, you know, I think part of it was the era, but also part of it was being in Utah where, you know, I, I don't want to paint a broad brush, but I just don't think it was going on all that much. You know, there wasn't an awareness to it. I mean, it's very wonderful Mormon families that, you know, mom and dad are home with their kids. And I'm sure that there was some, you know, dysfunction going on with some of that. But for the most part, you know, that's just, it was just families after families. And so um, I don't know that they would have ever really noticed anything was going on. And I, I was afraid to say anything that would get me in trouble with anything. It wasn't necessarily about telling somebody that I was in danger, that I was afraid of. I just didn't want any attention from my stepdad or my mom, you know? So I, I thought a lot about, you know, if I do something wrong, are they going to call them? Because I just don't want any more attention than you know, they weren't paying attention to me, but when they did, I was usually in trouble for something or being abused in some way. I know that you were being abused by, it was your mom's boyfriend, right? Not a stepdad? Your yeah, mom's he boyfriend. Stepdad. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how old were you when that started, the abuse? So I think that it was, I, it started around... I, I think he started because he definitely, you know, profiled it and, and got to the point. So I think he started doing those things when I was about nine. And then the, you know, to, to prep me for what he was going to be doing, which I, I, again, from a memory standpoint, I would say 10 and a half, maybe 11 is mm -hmm. when it really started to, to tick up. And, and then it went your fast. Did your mom, I know there was a couple times where you mentioned that um, your mom, you, there was a point where you, you were in a hotel or a new, a, a new place and your, mo your mom left. And then yeah. that was when he started sexually abusing you. Do yeah. you feel like your mom knew? Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, because up until that point, he was touching me. You know, he started with the lotion. Um, uh, you know, we'd go to the swimming pool. And if I was sunburned or, you know, even if I wasn't, you know, he would say, oh, you have a tan line. The places that are, are wider are the places where we need to put the lotion because they're pulling. So he had his hand in, under my swimsuit with her standing there all the time. Yeah, oh. all the time. You know, or, or buying us, you know, lingerie and taking pictures of me in this lingerie and she was standing there. And oftentimes we were in the pictures together that he would take. So when, when she left, when we went to this hotel and she left to get ice, I mean, we had been in hotels several times, you know, he was a truck driver. And so we would stop at these hotels and 
somebody would go get ice. Sometimes they sent me to get ice, you know, I mean, I knew that the ice was never very far away. Right. And, and when she wasn't coming back, you know, and, and again, so there, in my head, there were two fears. There was one, like, what is he doing to me? This is new. This hasn't happened before. And then I'm worried about my mom. Like, is she okay? Why isn't she coming back? You know, and that, um, that that's the stuff that is so scarring. I think for me, as I've aged is like this multiplicity of danger of all of these things. And, and also, you know, wanting to be a good mom and, and be a, a functioning adult where I don't allow that to, you know, I don't want to worry too much about things. I don't want to assume everything's going to be bad, but it's definitely from times like that, you know, that you're just so fearful, even when she came back from um, getting the ice and then nothing was said and, you know, and then they get drunk and, you know, you know, then they're having sex on the bed where I'm in the bed. And, you know, it was just stuff like that. Like it was just never ending from a safety perspective, you know. My goodness. You know, for me, after the abuse, you know, I, you know, I, I started, I guess, getting into, um, bad behaviors, you know, I'm, you know, my mom thought I was some bad kid, because I guess I started lashing out. And I started, you know, I got started dabbling in drugs. And I started, um, I became hypersexual as a teenager. And um, just all of these things that I just assumed I was just this bad kid, you know, literally, last year, I was told, Oh, those are just symptoms of your trauma. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. I'm not a bad person. Um, did you develop any um, like maladaptive coping skills um, because of all of this trauma? Um, so I would say with me, and I, and I do credit a lot of this to growing up where I grew up in Utah. Um, I, I just didn't want to be like my mom. I wanted to be like all those other moms. And I, I also think because I was an only child that that had a lot to do with it because I, I really was, it was just me. And so I, I probably erred completely the other way. Um, you know, people to this day say that, um, that, that I, that I try to be too perfect, you know, and, and so from a perfectionism or I can be intimidating because I'm highly capable of a lot of things. I have a lot of capacity but I think that comes from all of those years of making sure everything was done and perfect and everybody's happy. Um, I don't ever want anybody mad. I don't want anybody to yell. I don't want anybody to hurt me. And so I overcompensated, um, you know, in those ways. Um, even when I got married and, and had my first daughter, no alcohol in the house. Like, it's just, it's not allowed, you know, we're, I don't know if I'm an alcoholic. I don't want it here. I don't want any temptations. And so I jumped way over on the other side of, yeah. um, of that. That's amazing. It, that's amazing that you were able to see the moms you wanted to be and, and be that for your daughter. Um, when was the first time you started talking about all of this trauma? 
Um, so I talked about it a little bit um, in my late teens, uh, it, but it almost still felt like a movie. And then I felt really awkward because it, again, where I was from, people weren't, you know, pe people my age weren't, they were, they were going to church. They weren't going to party, you know? And so I, I remember feeling like I need, I think I'm a little different and I need to share, like my experiences have been a little different, but it wasn't, it wasn't received well. So I just stopped. Um, mm -hmm. Then after I got married, <laughs> this will tell you how logical, like sometimes I am. I was like, you know what? <laughs> I was molested for many years and now I'm married and that could, that could damage my marriage. So maybe I should go get some therapy. I mean, it was just very practical. It wasn't uh -huh. like there were any problems, but um, that's when I really first started to talk about it with a therapist. But again, I was very business-like there's a problem. We need to fix it, you know, or if there isn't, you know, you need to tell me I'm okay. And I'll just go back to you know, checking all the boxes of being married and being a wife and being a mom, but not really learning about the scars and the trauma and how I was reacting that that perfectionism and that checking the boxes um, to do what I thought was normal instead of really learning who I am and being that person. Um, I just kind of tucked it away. And so when I really opened up completely about all of it. I was um, in my early forties and I was at a, I was at a leadership development, which sounds really odd, but this, this leadership development program, um, they want you to tell an inspirational story. And, you know, my inspirational story was about this one person at 12 years old who had, he changed my life just because he was so kind to me for an hour. And, um, but, but in order to tell that story of why he was so inspirational, I had to tell about the trauma. And, mm -hmm. you know, I really, Lori, I, I realized at that moment going through all of that, that the, the, the sexual abuse, I mean, it was horrific. And, and, you know, I had forgiven my stepdad at that point, because I had talked to him and, mm -hmm. but it was not nearly as damaging for me personally as the abandonment of my mom mm -hmm. and you know that having to tell people like I'm the way that I am because I don't know how to be just me I don't know how to be normal I just want to make sure that everybody else feels safe and protected you know like I'm Superman and can save the world you know <laughs> wow I mean that's that's amazing that you were able to to talk about that you know talking about the parakeet drawing when you received um this this kindness from this this man it was at a party right you were underneath a table kind of hiding yeah right yeah was he a friend of your parents or no i had never seen him before i never saw him after um, I had never seen him before. They, they kind of had a group of, of, you know, the normal people that would come over and, and party with them. Um, but then there was always a group that, you know, I had no idea who they were. And most of the time I was hiding. So um, not in plain sight like that under the table. Um, mm -hmm. But, but yeah, that I, I had never seen him before and I never saw him again after. Wow. And he probably didn't know what was going on with you and your traumas. He was just a no. kind person. Yeah. Yeah. 
You know, I, I try to think like, what would that be like if you, if you're partying, you know, and, and most of the people when they came were had already been partying or jumped right into it. It was very easy to do drugs or to drink as soon as you walked in the door. Um, but then you realize there's a child mm-hmm. in this home, you know, and then there's, I don't know, 15 to 30 people at a time coming in and out and you see, you know, this, this child, I don't even know how he knew I was under the table. Cause there was a tablecloth, you mm-hmm. know, but somehow he knew I was under there. And, you know, I, I think about that. Um, you know, I think about it, it, that another thing it did for me is, as I go through life, I really try to see people because he saw me, you know, and it, it's amazing to me how that one thing can just completely change somebody's life. Wow. Yeah, and it seemed like once, once you met this person and he taught you how to draw a parakeet and it seemed like that's when you found your voice. And, and that's when you started telling your boyfriend or not your boyfriend, your mother's boyfriend, excuse me, that started telling him no. And then you asked your dad if you could live with him. What did that feel like? Oh gosh. Liberating, just liberating. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and again, it was like I had been probably about four to five years, almost like a captive, you know, even though I was going to school and it was my mom and that it was very captive. It was very isolating. And I didn't know, you know, when you walk around in fear and you have to always be strategic about protecting yourself, you're not, you're not you're not building relationships with people, you know, you're not letting your guard down and getting to know you're apprehensive about everyone. Um, and so for him to make that effort towards me, it immediately, I just knew there were good people. And I, I, I know it seems really simplistic, but that alone gave me the strength. If I can get out of here, I can be around more people like that. Yes. Wow. Wow. Um, and things got better, but then things kind of, I, I know that there were your dad, you moved in with your father. Um, and, and then you moved back to, um, your mother's house. Um, did, when was it that you actually told, talk to your stepdad about Mm -hmm. all of this and actually confronted him about it? Yeah. So it was, um, so I, I had moved out. I'd lived with my dad for four or five years. I was a senior in high school. Um, my stepmom and I were not getting along and I went back to live at my mom's house because I knew I was very strong at that point, you know, emotionally, mentally, like he's not going to hurt me and, you know, I'll kick his butt if he tries, you know, was kind of my mentality. Um, And so, and I just wanted to graduate from high school. So I moved back. And as soon as I graduated from high school, I turned 18 a month later and I could get an apartment. And so I was off on my own. Um, I joined the military, uh, met my my husband um, and started the therapy. And when I started the therapy, you know, my therapist, um, he was really good about I think he was shocked. I mean, I can remember him saying, now what happened? You know, you've never talked about this before. And he decided I needed to go into um, an adult 
um, children of alcoholics and um, a sexual survivors group. And I did not want to do that. I mean, I, again, felt like I had been fine for the past 10 years and I was trying to get, you know, get on with it. Um, and then I really, my anxiety started and, and that's when they put me in a, in a hospital, um, for a couple of weeks, I was in the hospital and in that hospital, I went to a, a session, uh, for children that had, or adults who had been children that had been molested. Mm -hmm. And I remember the counselor as people were saying what had happened. And one girl said, okay, I, but mine wasn't as bad as hers, the one that had just talked. And the counselor said, time out. It doesn't matter if you were raped or if someone just stuck their hand in your panties, the reaction and what happens to you on the inside is the same. Mm -hmm. And I, I, as I say that, you know, I don't want to say that one isn't more horrific than the other from a, you know, just an abusive it's just, they're all awful, but mm -hmm. what it does to a, to a human being to be invaded that way is mm -hmm. the same. And that just yeah. really struck me. It really, that was the first time I realized that what he had done to me was really not okay. Yeah. 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 It really hit home there because I had been carrying it around in me forever. And I had tried to kind of tell people, but people didn't want to talk about it and they didn't want to know. And at that moment, I thought, it's okay that that happened and that, that I, that I own it, you know, that I say it happened to me. It's okay that, you know, I feel scared about the things I feel scared about because of what happened to me. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and I was still really angry with him and I, that's where I was like, I'm just going to, he needs to talk to me. And, you know, the goal was not to forgive him. The goal was, I want you to know that I know what you did to me. Mm -hmm. That, that was the whole reason for the call. Um, and so it, I definitely went into it more um, ready to tell him off. You know, um, I can remember saying, and I, and I put this in the book, I've always wondered why people hurt children. Don't they realize that children are going to grow up? You know, we're going to turn into adults and we're going to remember all of this. It's not like you're getting away with something, you know, mm -hmm. and I, and I wanted to tell him, you didn't get away with it. I know what you did. I know what you did. What was his reaction? Well, he didn't like it. You know, <laughs> the first, <laughs> the first I was calling him because we, we were stationed overseas at the time. And I honestly was terrified to come back to the States. I was terrified to come back because I really realized now how much he had hurt me. Mm -hmm. And I was really angry with my mom and that, that I felt like she still had power to hurt me. And part of that fear, what I had to get over that fear was I was going to have to have the conversation specifically with him. I needed to do that. And so I called him a couple of times. He just kept hanging up on me. And so finally he answered and I said, if you hang up on me, I will, I will take your ass to jail. <laughs> that was basically what I said. You know? And I didn't know that I didn't know if this was true or not, but I said the statute of limitations is not over. And and, <laughs> and he was like, Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And I said, So we're we're gonna talk about this. 
this is what you did to me. And I named everything off every single thing. I said, I want you to hear it, that you did this to me. And, and he apologized. And, and I said, why? I mean, I don't think you realize what you've done to me and how you, you've damaged me. And now I'm trying to function as an adult with a husband and a baby and a job. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just don't realize what you did to me. Why do you think that was okay? And he shared with me, he said, you know, I was abused my whole life and he had been married four times. And I didn't know this until this point. I knew he had been married before. I knew he had other kids. He'd been married four times before. He had eight children. And he said, I beat all of them. The women, the children, I was physically abusive to them. And when I met your mom, I promised myself I would never hit her. And when I found out she had a daughter, I promised myself I would never hit you. I would never beat you. And I would never beat her. And he said, and I, I didn't do that. I did some bad things, but I didn't do that. And I, that touched my heart, you know, it touched my heart that he was, he was open enough to really give me some of his history because, you know, now as a, as a survivor, even then I did realize I had been through trauma and I knew what my own instincts were because of that trauma for him to just admit it. You know, I said, okay, thank you. Thank wow. you for having the conversation and thank you for telling me and giving me a little bit more of your lens. I still, I don't like it, but I understand it better now. And then I said, wow. I, I want, no, I forgive you. Wow, and that that's... was not my, yeah, I had no plans to forgive him at all. And it just came out of my mouth. That was extremely brave of you. I think that's incredible for your own healing to have been able to address that with him. Did you address anything with your mother about the, the feelings of abandonment? I didn't, I tried after that. You know, all of my therapy had really been around the, the sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's, you know, where I felt like I needed to go to heal, to feel comfortable coming back to the States, to feel safe again. Um, and I knew that, you know, she was definitely a big part of the problem, but again, I hadn't had any counseling really on that part of it. And so, um, when I came back and I still wasn't better, you know, and I was going through all of this therapy and, and I was like, you know, I don't know that the molestation bothered me ever that much because the other part was so bad with my mom and that abandonment piece that it had, she taken care of me and protected me. I felt like none of that would have happened. And so it, it wasn't like something that loomed over me a lot. Um, and then after therapy, I, I thought I, had, again, I'm a box checker. Like, what are the rules? What am I supposed to do? Okay. I did therapy. Okay. I forgave him. Okay. So now I can go, let's go have my life again. You know, <laughs> right. and it still wasn't a life, you know, I still had anxiety. I still was having panic attacks. I, you know, I just still felt so worthless that I wasn't yeah. worthy of being loved at all. And, 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 you know, and I was, I had, I had three daughters, you know, soon after. So I only had one and then six years later had twins. And, and so then my whole guy, my whole life was on, you know, raising, raising these girls um, to be strong and, 
and to educate them, you know, to, to be open with them. And through that, realizing even more how my mom had been there. Um, but my mom was still drinking. Um, she would never like, even she would never pick up the phone. If I called her, she would never answer the phone. Um, and I, and I stopped calling her when I was 21, right before um, we went overseas, um, because she would call me in the middle of the night, drunk and just screaming at me. And I just, I had to say, you know, until you're clean, I can't have a relationship with you. And so trying to go back then and, and say, can we talk? And she was still drinking. I felt like one, she wasn't going to be easy to talk to. And two, mm -hmm. I had told her I wasn't going to do it until she got clean. So, so no, we, we never had an opportunity to, to talk. Um, I tried to bridge that, um, in my forties, sending her a Christmas card every year. And, you know, my Christmas card was always a picture of us. Um, you know, I, I sent her a birthday card once, um, you know, I was trying to kind of reach out and let her know I'm here, but I also, um, I kind of hoped I wouldn't hear from her because it, it just hurts so bad to, you know, to have any kind of relationship with her. Um, yeah, I, yeah, when I, when I went into treatment, it was a lot of focus was put on the sexual abuse. Um, yeah. Like towards the end, once I was good, I was in treatment for 31 days. And once um, I did the EMDR therapy and I was able to process the, the abuse, we did some, a genogram and I realized that a lot of my behaviors and feelings of worthlessness and abandonment were from my mother. Um, yeah. and so that is actually something I'm currently working on. Um, is that something that you feel like you've gotten your closure with, or is it something you're still working on? Um, I think I'll always be working on it, you know, and I, I, I'm at the point where I understand that now. Um, you know, I, I talk in the book about my last therapist, the one I still see now who calls me a runner and you know, that was probably the best thing anybody could have ever said to me because I didn't want to deal with that hurt, that, that abandonment and that, um, you know, I just think the one person that's supposed to love you is your parents, right. Or the two people. And I had that from my dad. Um, but as a woman, as a girl, not having a mom and that nurturing, um, that was so hurtful to not know how to be a woman, you know, mm -hmm. to, to be very, very strong and be criticized for being too strong, not knowing how to be soft because I didn't have the mom there to show me that. Um, and yet trying to do it for my daughters. Um, and when, when things got hard, I just would think, okay, well, what's the best way to be a mom? You know, I, my, one of my very first counselors had told me, find other moms, find other women that you think are great moms so that you, you have some role models to go to. And so I, I, I still do that to this day. I call friends and say, okay, what would you do in this situation? Mm. And so it, it, it's still hurtful. You know, when my daughters are all grown now, but when they struggle with stuff, my immediate thought is, 
okay, I probably screwed that up. I probably, you know, you know, but, but I, I stop and I say, I'm a, I'm a way better mom than my mom was. You know, give yourself some of those kudos, but, but yeah, when you don't know how to do it, right. And you, you don't, you can't, something happens in life, you know, um, you know, I think about when my, when my daughters have a baby, you know, and I'm like, I need to be right there. I need to be in the delivery room. I need to cook food when they come home. I need, you know, I need to do all the stuff that I never got. Right. Mm -hmm. It's all of that. Like, how do I, how do I show up? What are you supposed to do as a mom in those situations? And so it's, it's, it's a constant trigger for me that I didn't have that. Um, And I, I did go through 30 years of just a deep sadness, you know, when I would think about it as sadness, but then I, I ran, like, I'm not going to deal with that sadness. I'm just going to go be a really good mom. And so, yeah. So over the past, just the past two to three years, um, when I feel sad now I cry, you know, and I, I mourn and I sit, you know, my therapist, I remember saying to him, you want me to just go sit on my couch and cry about stuff? Like stuff that happened 40 years ago. That's just a waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Stuff to do. <laughs> I hear you. I know it took me a while to realize it was important to feel my feelings. Right. I, I wanted to ignore it, but you know, it came out in other ways. And like you, I felt like, oh my gosh, am I a horrible mom? You know, am I doing, I, I'm screwing them up because, you know, because of all of the trauma, I've become really reactive to yes. things. And, and my daughter, my husband's wonderful, but my daughter is so intuitive and she, you know, she'll tell me like, when I'm like, stop yelling at your brother. And she's like, will you yell? So you're teaching me how to <laughs> yell. And, you know, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible mom. Um, yeah. But you know, going through the therapy has, has helped me. And, and you're right. You find the role models, you find the other moms who you want to be like and who you want to emulate. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, Is there anything you'd like to add? Um, I think the only thing, Lorelei, just kind of what you were just saying there, you know, that, that being able to own that, that this happened to us and that we're okay. You know, uh, for me, the not running that, that makes me feel even more okay. Right. At this point. Um, but we're, we're not promised a great life. No one is. Right. And, you know, I've, I've, I've never liked the word victim. Um, I know for some people that's a healing word, so I don't want to take away from others, but for me, I don't want to be a victim um, of her or of my stepdad, my, you know, at that time, her boyfriend. Um, I want to be a victor. And for me, being a victor is being like the man that came under the table and saw me. And so, you know, going through life, um, I just hope as, and, you know, when we look at our country and the things that we've been through, I just hope we can, we can go through life seeing people and, and, you know, when people look at me, they, until I wrote the book, they would never know, you know, what I have been through. Um, and I'm okay with that. I'm really okay with it. 
what I want them to see in me is somebody that loves them, um, that will fight for them, you know, that, that will show up when they need me. Um, and I, and I hope that like with the book and with doing these podcasts, that those things can come out, um, you know, for people that have been through trauma and abuse that, that they would know that they can be okay and they can use that, that hurtful, painful side to impact other people in a really beautiful way. You know, I think what you're doing with, with this podcast is such a, it's such a blessing and such an example of that. Like, let's just talk about it and let's talk about it with people who are having success on the other side of healing or through the healing. You know, I, like I say, for me, I don't know that I'll ever completely heal, yeah. you know, but I, I'm not going to let it stop me. And I'm, I'm certainly not going to let it stop me from being a good person. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your book um, and just having you on and telling your story. You're so brave and I, I appreciate all of it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for having a platform like this where, where people can share. Thank it's going to make a big difference in people's lives. Yeah. I sure hope so. That was Gina DeFay, Trauma Survivor Thriver or Victor, and author of The Parakeet Drawing. For more information on Gina, including where to purchase her book, please visit atstpodcast.com. That's the letter A, tstpodcast.com. There you can get all of her information, and you can also subscribe to my monthly magazine, Authentic Insider, for more in-depth inspirational stories and everything mental health. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. I'm Lori Binstock, and you've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. Take care.